Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at Charts. Every quarter, every single quarter, Charts releases a kick-ass economic update visual deck to arm advisors and investors with insights from the previous quarter to help them make smarter investment decisions with topics ranging from market insights to interest rates and macroeconomic data. You get a client-friendly PowerPoint deck at your fingertips that easily breaks down economic trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. Go to YCharts.com to grab your own copy covering Q3 2023. And don't forget, we, Ben and I, we're going to be doing a webinar in December. It's going to be the charts that define 2023, which should be a lot, actually. I think there's going to be, so December 6th, 2 p.m. Eastern, we are going to be host, we are going to be with YCharts talking about the charts of the year. It'll basically be like a live Animal Spirits webinar, right? I feel like the the, the chart that defined the year, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's Magnificent 7 versus everything else. Is that the okay. biggest thing? I feel theme like of the you year? could have like 12 charts of the year. Economic, market. Yeah, of course. There will be a link to register for this webinar in our show notes. Check them out, wealthofcommonsense.com or elveninvestor.com. We'll mention this a few more times before it happens too, but December 6th, be there. Also, 20% off your initial subscription if you tell them Animal Spirits sent you for white charts. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Ben, should we tell the audience that the old email is now being forwarded to the new one? Or should we just make them email animalspirits at thecompoundnews.com? Okay, we'll keep it a secret. Okay. Don't tell anyone. Just between us. So a few people told us this, which we obviously didn't realize and makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Well, thank you <laughs> to the email. That was like a, oh yeah, that was It's like forwarding your mail when you, it's like forwarding your mail when you move. So I am... I am about to, uh, well, not about to. So we're recording this. We're recording this early. Normally, our schedule for recording is Tuesday. That's Tuesday before Wednesday, but we're going to be in Charlotte. I'm going to be flying. Uh, so it's I'm going to be in Cincinnati. Ben's going to be in Cincinnati. Uh, are you going to put the seat back? Are you going to recline? <laughs> no, I never do it. So we had, we had a lot of people email us the video of a woman getting very upset it looked like she was getting very upset that somebody was like not allowing her to lean back. What was the person kicking her chair? They were pushing her chair because she leaned back. Here's the thing though. I think if you're going to do it, you have to move back slowly. I feel like the, there's a lot of people who just <laughs> push the button and just go like this. Yes, right? of course. And jack it back. So I feel like if they do that, you you can give them a forearm shiver to the back of the chair once, just once. You know what the other bad etiquette is on planes for people? If you're getting out of your seat to go to the bathroom, get your bag or something, and you grab the seat in front of you to pull yourself up. Oh, did somebody email us that? That I don't know. That, I, that, that, that to me, I, I, that, that's that, the worst. That's the worst so so when, when you're sitting in your chair, and, and uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see me, but when it goes like this, yeah, it's like, whoa, so whoa, whoa. Yeah, take it easy. You can't, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a pull. It's not a, for bracing yourself. Well, let, let me, let me ask you this. Somebody emailed us. I just got off a flight in which I had an aisle seat. I was dead asleep when the attendant was coming down the aisle with the beverage cart. 
the woman in the middle seat next to me literally elbowed me in the arm and woke me up to make sure I knew the car was there. <laughs> oh, okay, that is that is egregious. That's a lot. Just assume, hey, I'm sleepy. I'm not thirsty. Leave me alone. Yes, that's- From that, thirsty, I'll ask the flight attendant. That's an uns- unspoken code. Yeah. Okay, so we're recording on Friday, which was a jobs day today, and the market seems to like it. Bond yields down, stock prices up. I sent you this before we <laughs> The recorded. market seems to like it. The, well, the, the stock market was in a correction this year for five minutes. It was down 11% from the highs or 10% from the highs on Friday. Now up this week from the jobs report. And the thing people seem to like about it is that, yes, we still added jobs, but it wasn't like a hot jobs report. So people are saying like, this is, the, the labor market is cooling off a little bit. This is a good thing. It makes the Fed's job easier. I, I guess you could say this is Goldilocks a little bit. But of course, there are going to be people who say, okay, this is the beginning of the slowdown as well. And no way to tell either way. What happens when the market goes from correction to pullback territory? Does it uncorrect? Dead cat bounce, right? Nah, it's not dead cat bounce. You can't say that until you're in a bear market. So Heather Long tweeted, we're finally seeing a real slowdown in the job market. 150,000 jobs added. The government made up one third of that. What was the expected? uh, Was it 180, I think? I don't know. Does it matter? Yeah, it does. Okay, so it's lower than expected. The thing is, that it, it had to slow eventually because like even the prime age labor force participation, this is people 25 to 54, is almost as high as it's ever been. Like we've, that, it's higher than it was pre-pandemic. So more people are in the, in the labor force than the prime age. Now the whole labor force is going down because boomers are retiring. That makes sense. But the prime age, 25 to 54, is within spitting distance of the highest it's ever been, which was in 2000. So the, the labor market had to slow eventually. It couldn't keep growing. Labor force went down 201,000, 3.9% unemployment, highest since early 2022. Um, August and, and September revised down sharply. Nothing to panic about, but it points to slower growth. The, the average unemployment rate from 2017 through 2019, basically pre-pandemic, was just, I think, 4%. And now we're at 3.9%. So certainly nothing to be necessarily alarmed about. Nevertheless, growth is slowing. Uh, here's here's Bill McBride. Leisure and hospitality gained 19,000 jobs in October. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, leisure and hospitality lost 8.2 million jobs and are now down 223,000 jobs since February 2020. So leisure and hospitality has added back 97% of all jobs lost in March and April 2020, which is pretty remarkable. That's pretty impressive. Pretty remarkable. Construction employment increased 23,000 and is now 425,000 above the pre-pandemic levels. Manufacturing employment decreased, but is now 175,000 above the pre-pandemic levels. So slower, nothing to be alarmed about. So two economic people that I follow and had different messages this week, which is interesting. So Colin Roche asked if the Fed's going to fumble the football. He said this last week, if I was Fed chief, I'd be communicating an end to hikes and halt in the balance sheet runoff. This would send a strong signal to the bond market that it's time to stop letting rates climb, which is pretty much what happened this week. The Fed didn't raise. The bond market, had yields have fallen big time. They went from 5% of the 10-year to 4.5% or something. Uh, so he says, like, time to chill. And then Matthew Klein at the overshoot says, basically, uh, spending is still going up at a blistering rate. He said, U.S. made goods and services rose at a blistering 9% yearly rate in Q3 2022, 2023. 
the exact implications for all of this are that the Fed are not entirely obvious, but it does suggest that the underlying growth momentum, both nominal and real, is strong enough that officials should keep their focus on preventing any unwanted loosening of financial conditions, which could upend an otherwise healthy economy. So he's saying, like, we still risk being a little too hot here. And I think that's maybe why people thought this jobs report was so good, that it's good that things slowed a little bit. But it is kind of funny that we're, I feel like the Fed is at a very tough juncture right now in figuring out what to do. So I think like just chilling out for a while and seeing what happens is probably a good place to be. But you have people who are worried about higher for longer on one end and people who are worried about like a recession and rates tumbling on the other end. It's a weird place to be, right? Like what would you be more worried about? A, a recession and growth slows and rates slow or a boom and inflation continues a little higher than we thought and growth continues a little higher than we thought. It's a different worry for the economy and the markets, I think. Because don't you think that the economy is slowing right now is probably a good thing for the markets. If the economy slowed and rates fell and inflation fell, I think that's good for the markets. It's weird as it sounds. No, it's incredible for the markets. Look what happened to the stock market this week when, when rates started to come down. So the 10-year went from 4.9% at the beginning of the week to 4.55% today. Market is screaming. And if you look at the, the interest rate-sensitive stocks – Look at utilities. Look at home builders. Did you hold on to your utilities position? I did. Look Ready at to sell? No. Look at consumer staples. Look at regional banks. Oh my god. The 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 stocks that are that have been hit hardest by rising interest rates are ripping this week. Zero coupon bonds are up 7.5% this week. So speaking about like the Fed and what they might or might not do, I thought this was interesting. Gunlock said, if the economy rolls over, he was on uh, CNBC with, with Scott Wapner. He said, if the economy rolls over, as I expect, the Fed is not going to cut rates 50 basis points. They're going to cut rates 200 basis points. So he's in the recession camp. If the economy rolls over into a recession and this were to happen, the Fed does a cut of 200 basis points. Do people panic and sell because, oh my God, things are really bad? Or do risk assets absolutely soar? It depends. I mean, right? Yeah. That's why it's so, because like the higher for longer, I feel like everyone latched onto the higher for longer thing. The, the whole interest rate thing is, is all screwed up. And this, this is why like I've been a little hard on the Fed the last 18 months or so, but they're in a really difficult position here because they've already pushed so hard. But I mean, are we going to look back and say 5%? Treasury bond yields for like a week. That was it. Like, I hope you, I hope you got it while I was here. Or is there going to be another boom in a quarter? and We're going to forget about all this. That, that's that's why we're in such a precarious position. I can see it going either way. Well, so can I. But one of the things that I've been that I'm going to double down on. I think we said that last week. I know I was speaking with Josh about it. I can't keep track of all these damn podcasts. But a trillion dollars went into money market funds. That move happened gradually, then suddenly. I think the reverse will be true, but even more. How many rate cuts would it take, do you think, for people to start getting worried about having their money in T-bills and money markets? So if, if rates go down to 4%, the money's going to stay there. If rates go down to 3%, the money's going to stay there. If rates go down to 2%, you think money will stay point, in money like, markets oh my God, if rates I, go from 5 Should I have three. all this money in, in cash just sitting there? I think it was I think very- I at that point, people start getting a little worried and move it out and look for other avenues. But my point is, it was very easy and comfortable and probably the right decision to get your money out of a checking account and into money market funds. Oh, definitely. For cash management purposes. 
for sure. But but long term, I feel like that will not. People if are not timing, leave the money market funds. If you're timing the stock market into money market funds and T bills, that's a much harder move the other way. It was an easy. It was probably an easy thing to do at the moment, and just I'm just going to clip these five percent. Going back into stocks or whatever you're going to put your money into is a much harder decision. We've spoken a lot about attention on the uh, the sixty forty portfolio. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. Your set it and forget it 401k made you rich. No more. Stock and bond portfolios that worked for the past 40 years aren't ready for what's coming. Now, Spencer Jacob wrote the article. I'm a fan of Spencer's. There's no way that he wrote that headline, right? We all understand that the people that write the article don't control the headline. Not a great article. Not a great article. Um, And it was basically like correlation and where the, the reality should be, the reality should be, the 60-40 portfolio had an incredible run, a remarkable run that, frankly, very few professional investors beat. Even the 40 part, like the 60-40 portfolio had an incredible sharp ratio, incredible returns. And yeah, it had a really rough 22, right? Obviously, it had a very, very rough 22. But the, the reporting should be, the good news is that you no longer have to lean so heavily on the 60 part of the portfolio to carry the load. That should be the reporting. And honestly, it was a bad thing that it happened so quickly for bond investors that you got just savaged. But rates went up so fast that, like, you got the you ripped the bandaid off. You got the pain. And the other thing is, I hate when people say that like the only reason that returns have been high in financial markets is because the last forty years rates have been falling. Listen, that's helped. But I, I just looked this up: nineteen twenty six to nineteen eighty, the S and P five hundred did nine point four percent per year. That is lower than the eleven point two percent it did from nineteen eighty one to now. I don't know, 9.4% still sounds pretty good to me. Bonds did like 3% as opposed to like 6%. So it's not like, yes, returns have been better since 1980 when rates fell, but that's also because the yields were so much higher to start off, right? So you, can, I, I just hate the idea that like the last 40 years, everything is because of falling inflation and falling rates. Yes, that helped. It provided a tailwind, but it's not like returns before then were awful, right? And that, that period from 1926 to 1980, Includes an eighty-five percent correction crash in the Great Depression. <laughs> correction. Sorry, correct. Yeah, <laughs> minor pullback. Healthy correction. Uh, Morningstar had a piece that sh- showing the the valuations of a 60-40 portfolio over the long term, and guess what? It's starting to look a lot looking better. attractive. Looking attractive. Right? So all all we see are like Cape ratio charts and how expensive the U.S. stock. First of all, we're trading at seventeen times forward earnings. Now, is that where rates should be given the interest rate environment? I don't know. That's what the market says. I'll take the market's word for it. But if you look at, and the way that they calculate this is not important. We'll link to it in the show notes if you're really curious. But the bottom line is, if you look at a valuation of a 60-40 portfolio today versus certainly two, three years ago, it it's it's reasonable. And to my point from the last episode, if you want cheaper stocks that are out there, value stocks, small cap stocks, international stocks. Mid-cap. If, you, if you're worried about valuations in the U.S., which people have been for a while, you know, granted, and it hasn't mattered yet on a relative basis, other stocks are still relatively cheap. And I also think the set it and forget it thing, like I still think that's the best bet for the vast majority of investors. And it always will be. Uh, this is an interesting one. I, always, I like these stock picking things. So Clementine Investing Substack had this, the distribution of US stocks. And it's a new research piece that I guess just came out that I'd not seen before. And they looked at the U.S. stocks in the uh, CRISP database going back to 1926. And this, this is like the, the coup de grace here for you. In every sector you look at, and they look at 
returns over one month, one year, five years, and 10 years. So look at how the graphs change. It's a really cool chart. And it goes from like a normal distribution and then keeps moving over and moving over. In every sector you look, more than half of all companies have a negative return over 10 years. Let me repeat that. If you randomly pick stocks in any given sector, your most likely outcome is that you have lost money after 10 years. This gets back to the, the Besson Binder study that we always talk about. But I thought this was interesting to look at it across sectors. Basically, the longer you hold your stocks, the more returns in the stock market of any sector come from a handful of names. My takeaway from this is just pick the winners. Yes, it's easy. But but that's the the thing. It's, it's almost like you have a better chance of picking the winners over the short term, which which should be the reverse. Right? Like if you just if you're just the monkey throwing darts at the newspaper, if that's still a thing, is like you actually have a better chance of picking a winner over a month or a year than you do over 10 years, which is hard to believe. Yeah. So huh. y- you read this piece from The Atlantic on uh, private equity devouring the smaller companies. I, so, I didn't, but I'm glad that you did. Okay. My dad actually sent me this one. And the secret of industry devouring the U.S. Wait, economy. wait, wait, hold, hold on. You know what my dad does? He brings over... Articles, not even articles. He brings over pages from Newsday, which is the local newspaper, individual pages, and and <laughs> he folds them into thirds, and he just he'll like hand me like two of them. You know my what he dad, had? To, my dad ahead. mails my dad mails me them in the mail. Wow. He'll send me a newspaper clipping that's folded. Yeah, in the mail. Yeah, I just had I just had flashbacks. Yeah, but I guess my dad used to mail me stuff at, at camp, like physical newspaper uh, about like. Uh, I just got super like old feeling. That's how I used to find out about Nick's trades was freaking letters from my dad cut out <laughs> New York post articles. But anyway, so the art, the two things that he brought me recently from Newsday, um, one was an interview with John Carpenter and the other was like the hundred scariest movies you haven't seen. <laughs> so at least he knows his son. So you, you went through and said, I already watched all these, Dad. Okay, yeah. so we've talked about this before. In 1996, there were 8,000 firms listed in the U.S. stock market. Since then, the national economy has grown by only $20 trillion. The population has increased by $70 million. That's kind of crazy. $70 million more Say people more now than in 1996. Let's, let's just, just, all right, 8,000 firms were listed. Yep. The national economy has grown by nearly $20 trillion. Okay, that's and a lot of And yet today, money. the number of American public companies stands at fewer than 4,000. How can that be? Now, we've talked about this before, that a lot of it was microcaps and companies that probably shouldn't have been around back then. You also have these big conglomerates, Google and Apple and Amazon are just swallowing up competitors. Uh, but this is interesting. This is the part that I haven't read before. In 2000, private equity firms managed about 4% of total corporate equity in the U.S. By 2021, that number was closer to 20%. In other words, private equity has been growing nearly five times faster than the U.S. economy as a whole. Wow. This should alarm you even if you've never bought a stock in your life. One-fifth of the market has been made effectively invisible to investors, the media, and regulators. Is this so – but is that, is that so bad? Go, f- That's, f- so, go finish. The point of the article was, listen, this happened a lot in the 20s where these it was these secretive private companies and you didn't have any financials on them and these were zombie companies walking around and we need more oversight. And I kind of see that, but the other side is like, I don't, these private equity firms are trying to wring out returns and it's in their financial best interest to make these firms grow. Now, some people might not like the way that they do that by, you know, firing people and selling off business lines and closing things up, but I don't, it, it is a, it's a shockingly high number. So, so is the, is the gist that private equity is bad for the economy? Is it bad for the people that are employed by private equity? I think it's probably companies? more the, more the stakeholders that like the, and, and there's just, there's not as much oversight here. So bad things can happen potentially. And there needs to be more oversight for these companies that can kind of do whatever they want 
in the because no one's really watching over them as much. Which I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I totally agree with. Yeah, I don't think so either. Now, there are definitely thousands of examples, and there's been articles written over the years about some private equity companies behaving in a way that is not so beneficial to the people that are, not, that are, that are labor and not capital. But as a whole, is this something that I'm alarmed about? I'm sorry, I'm not. And I think the point is, if it gets to the point where a private equity firm is buying you and trying to turn you around, it was probably not a great company to begin with. I think that's the thing, is a lot of those companies that were public in the 90s, like, probably shouldn't have been public in the first place. They yes. did it because there was an IPO boom. There's that, and then, like, yeah, uh, I mean, Apple's a ridiculous example because it's the biggest company in the world, but a company w- of the quality of Apple is not being, again, size aside, those quality companies aren't being bought by private equity companies. Right. Uh, okay, let's stick with small stocks for, for a second. Uh, this is a sentiment trader special. I love, so the reason why I love data points like this one is not because I think they're going to come true all of the time, but these patterns are human behavior patterns. They're not like some seasonality that has no, that is just sort of random. Now there's seasonality that's seasonal because there are structural reasons. So I'm not dismissing all seasonality, but this is human behavior. It's what happens after a washout. So this, the stat is this. This is the 24th time the Russell 2000 closed at a 52-week low. Okay. And then surged to its best four-day rally in at least three months. Okay. So we had the washout and then- So you had the washout the and, then, and then furious buying. People stepped in. Massively over a three-day period. One year later, the small cap index was higher 100% of the time with a median return of 25.6%. Now, do you go all in do you, because of this stat? No, of course not. Nothing is guaranteed forever. But I am a fan of these types of data points because these patterns are repeatable because they're driven by human behavior. Wash out, no sellers left. Oh shit, stocks rip for whatever the reason. Usually that's a good time to buy. In last week's episode, I looked at how cheap small caps are and I did a little more work on this. And I know people think it's it's all U.S. all the time. And if there's an AI bubble, the big tech stocks are probably going to be the ones that benefit. And everyone is just like the S&P 500 is the only game in town. Like I looked at this from 2000 to 2013. This was a, almost a decade and a half period. Small caps were up 8% per year and the S&P was up 3.6. Small caps wow. annihilated large cap stocks. And that's not that long ago. Wait, that so, can I mean, happen? That can happen? I think there's a lot of people who think like it's it's impossible for another segment of the market to outperform because of where we are with interest rates and the S&P and big tech stocks. And I just want to remind people that like it, it, it can happen. These things are cyclical. It, I don't know when, I don't know why. It's going to happen eventually. Uh, here's a good chart. Remember in 20, in 2020 and 21, the percentage of companies in the Russell 2000 that were unprofitable. Now, these are there's always much more unprofitable companies in the Russell than the S&P, right? Because these are, these are smaller stocks and but the percentage of unprofitable companies in the Russell 2000 has gone down fairly dramatically. It was at a high of almost 55%. Now it's down to 45%. Still, you might say, holy shit, one out of two almost are unprofitable, but it's heading in the right direction. Okay. I, I never know what to do with this, this data. Yeah, no, I don't think it's actionable. I just think it's like sort of like, huh, that's interesting. That's all. So you and I both talked about Aswath the Motor and was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. And you... We both said listen to it, and we both put the same piece in the doc. Literally. 
So the the best part I thought was him talking about his valuation framework and trying to take the macro out of it. And he kind of thinks there's there's checks and balances. So he talked about how when interest rates were low and inflation was low, that was fine because it was kind of balanced out by the fact they didn't have to pay as much and, just and re- growth just was going to be lower. Okay. Uh, those interest rates also told me, those low interest rates told me that there's going to be low inflation and low real growth in the future. So I projected that growth for these companies for the long term. I also pushed the growth rate down to reflect those same views. So the same low inflation that pushed down interest rates and also when my growth rates were low, my pricing power was lower, the effects in a sense offset. That's why my valuations don't change dramatically. And that's why I'm not surprised the market hasn't imploded because if you left everything as is and kept the cash flows you had two years ago and you raised the discount rate by two or three or 4%, which is what we have, stocks should be down 40 or 50% and they're not. And that's what a lot of people said. Like if you just take interest rates in a vacuum, the stock market should be crashing, right? But he said, the reason for this is that companies are flexible. They're adaptable as inflation comes through. Guess what they do? They pass that inflation on to US customers and the companies that are better suited to do that are more protected against inflation. And that's the thing people don't realize. It's like, yes, in a vacuum, if rates rise, discounted cash flows and all this stuff, but they don't take into account the fact that companies can actually raise rates. And I think that's the biggest, like, when when companies in the 80s got to, like, seven or eight times PE, like the whole stock market as a whole, and companies were trading for two times earnings or something, that was really before that they were very good at capital allocation and they could buy back their stocks. If something like that happened now where inflation got to 10, 12, 15%, companies would be, like, buying back stocks and like hand over fist, right? Their capital allocation decisions. I think companies are so much better than they were. So he's saying that like, listen, if inflation is and growth are low, I'm going to make, you know, pricing power for companies is lower. But if inflation and growth is higher, then the pricing power is going to go up and it, it sort of offsets one another. I think that's what people don't realize is that these companies can adapt to the marketplace as it is. I was thinking about the why you guys always bullish comment, which again, I've repeatedly said is not true, but Companies are like, not man- manipulating is the wrong word, but they are aggressively working to send the stock higher, right? Like to make the business more productive, to send the stock higher. So there was a bias for companies to push their own stock up. That doesn't even make sense. Here's, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going with this. A lot of people that are listening to the show make quite a bit of money, more money than they ever thought possible. And yet they might not be satisfied because of the very simple reason that we all move the goalposts. If I make $100,000, I'd be so happy. You get to 100000 If I make two hundred, I'd be so happy. And there's almost not a number. Now, for most people, right? Like for people that aren't making millions of dollars, there's almost not a number where you're content because you always want more. And that is what drives the stock market higher. It's people's insatiable appetite for more. Not just for the sake of consuming more, but I want more, I want more, I want more. And that is a permanent fixture in our society today. More, 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 more. Where like, like it's sort of a little bit sad for the individual, but for everyone, it's fantastic. I would also argue that the stock market and corporation, like corporate America, is still one of the most sane institutions that we have. Like in terms of like they like the blinders are on. They don't let other outside stuff and political forces and like corporations. That's what, that's their sole goal. Their eyes on the ball. So when I said that they're working to manipulate their stock price higher, obviously I don't mean literally manipulate, but they, they, they let people go. All they care about. They, they cut costs. They raise prices, whatever they, they, they do what they have to do to protect their margins. And American companies in the aggregate are really, really good at that. So it's not blindingly bearish or saying that we can't bear markets or you can't have even a lost decade, but give it enough time. 
and the trend is up and to the right. Zoom out enough and it's up and to the right. And if you think that's not the case, good luck to you. So a bunch of people sent us this uh, Wall Street Journal article, The Economy is Great, Why Are Americans in Such a Rotten Mood? Animal Spirits is obviously on this one a little early. Greg Ipp wrote this. He had a few things that, that touched on that we haven't touched on yet. So I just wanted to get them real quick. We promise we won't talk about this every episode. He said some 69% of respondents to Wall Street Journal survey in August said nice. the country's headed in the wrong direction. Ooh, not he nice. He said one of the things that we haven't mentioned that a few people said to us was political polarization, right? Saying that, like, and I think since a lot of people said it wasn't the pandemic, it was 2016 got this going. And I think that that's probably true. Uh, more than half of Republicans and Democrats rated their personal situation as excellent or good in August. But only 5% of Republicans said the economy as a whole was good compared with 58% of Democrats. So that's, that's another Ugh, thing, like, yeah, I'm doing sure. great. Everyone else, they're terrible. But the other, he said the other thing is, I suspect a lot of pessimism about the economy is referred pain. Just as one part of your body can hurt because of an injury to another, pessimism about the economy may reflect dissatisfaction with the country as a whole. Lately, there's been a lot, of de- a lot to be dissatisfied. Political and cultural conflicts, intolerance, pandemic, border, mass shootings, crime, all that stuff. And that, that's, that's the social media aspect. You made some good points about like the net worth and stuff not impacting you. Someone said on YouTube, most people don't calculate their net worth ever and don't know it. So, like, uh, you were talking about, like, the not moving the needle when your net worth goes up. Most people probably didn't know what it was before and don't know what it is now. So it, people who saw an improvement, they probably have no idea. I'm a finance guy, right? This is what I do for a living. I have no idea what my net worth is. Okay. Really I, and truly, I, honestly. I, I actually have I it know on a spreadsheet. <laughs> I have it on a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, I have <laughs> I know mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Of course you do. Um, all right. S- sort of survey of the week. This is interesting. That, that'd be a Duncan. Put that in the, in the YouTube survey. How, how do you know what your net worth is right now? Yeah. That'd be yeah. A good one. Uh, all right. Consumers, this is from daily chart, but consumer sentiment is lagging both consumer confidence and fin t- fin twit sentiment. This is from Goldman Sachs. I didn't know they had a fin twit sentiment. Yeah, but this just goes to Goldman our Sachs whole, Twitter. this just goes to our whole point. Surveys are bullshit. Yeah. These are three, these are three sentiment indicators that ostensibly should say the same thing. Yes, true. That what was the what was the book? Our our favorite anti-survey book. Uh, Everybody lies. Oh, uh, that's great. That, was that great. book really really nailed it. All and right, why is the, why is consumer sentiment rolling over? Especially, well, again, you saw gas prices are down like thirty five days in a row. Yes. Do you, so I saw that the I put this in here under inflation. This is from Gas Buddy. Two ninety nine a gallon is the most commonly seen gas price in the United States today. The first time we hit two ninety nine a gallon was in two thousand six. Two thousand six gas prices have gone nowhere. Adjust that for inflation, and gas prices are probably down forty percent in an inflation adjusted basis. No one, no one talks about it when they're low. All right, uh, CNBC. The average credit score in the U.S. just hit an all time high of seven eighteen in October. 718 falls under the good category. This may come as a surprise given high prices, rising rates, and U.S. credit card debt topping $1 trillion. FICO said the report that strong job market, slowing inflation, and a removal of medical debt have helped boost scores. I guess that that the medical debt thing probably. The average credit score is at an all-time high and nobody's happy. Shocker. <laughs> Hold on. I mean, I'm kidding, not kidding, but average credit score, this, these are quantitative measures, right? We're not moving the goalposts. Right. They, and they, again, they, they have changed the way that they reflect it. Some, some people might quibble with that, but yes, this is, this is not someone like looking at it and deciding you have a good score or a bad score. Is there like a shadow credit score agency? 
<laughs> like shadow stats. You know, there's there's like a group that says like, well, CPI, the way it was calculated was changed in the 1980s. That's true. Good, good point. Uh, Tyler Cohen, a study from University of Minnesota and Brookings suggests that income volatility has been mostly declining for the last seven decades and especially the last four. Whatever volatility r- risk remains, they used to be much worse. Uh, basically saying that like since the 50s for women and 80s for men, and this holds across demographic groups, gender, age, earnings, and cohort, income volatility, the change in your income has slowed. And I think that this is another point to why people are unhappy is like just the change in the economy has screwed with people. Things happening faster. People would rather probably get a slow stair step up rather than a huge increase if it comes with lower prices, that sort of thing. There's a book that I read. Um, oh, man. Ugh. I'll find it. I'll, I'll bring it up next week. But it was basically about like how relatively good we have it. And it's not to say that people aren't suffering because that's always the case. But how relatively good society has it that we've almost ran out of things to really complain about. Yes. In terms so we- of like you know, like infant mortality, like that's that's gone for the most part. And so now we just complain about everything. Yes. I, I think it's actually a sign of progress. If you have more time to complain about like- Yes, that was the gist of the book. I think it's, I think it's a sign of, pro- like, that's the other one is people always say like every generation before them is like, is snowflakes or wimps or whatever. Like that's the way it should be. That's a sign of progress. If the, each generation is getting softer and softer because that's a great point. progressing. So let's talk about the soft generation. Did you see the viral TikTok video of the girl who was crying about her- commute and everything like that? Yes, it it had the internet life cycle pretty quickly of uh, people hating on her at first, and then the backlash came in and said, no, 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 she makes some good points. So I don't know where we are now in the discourse, but the only thing I really, I really agree with her on is the commute thing. My first job, we had an office that was an hour and 15 minutes from my apartment, and the reason that I had an apartment that far away is because the office was going to be moving by the time I got to work there, it was my first job, and the office, new office wasn't done yet. So I had, for like the first four months of the job, had to drive an hour and 15 minutes there and an hour and 15 minutes back in heavy, heavy suburban Detroit traffic. And I wanted to like rip my steering wheel off and beat myself in the face with it at least once a week. So, so this is what social media has done to our society. Because unfortunately, social media, the followers, that's like the scorecard, right? So the, the, the absolute quickest way to gain a following. It's not, it's not to share your ideas, right? Like look how smart follow me. It's to shit on a group of people. Yes. It's dunking on others' ideas. That's, that's the whole game. And it's, it's, it's really pretty awful, but it is what it is. And my, my thought first reaction to this person was, well, well, of course people are going to do what they do was, yeah, it's life is hard. And the transition from young adulthood to adulthood or college to it's fucking hard. It's really, really hard. And I, I don't think like her complaining is, is uh, yeah, it went viral for, for, for whatever obvious reasons, but I don't know. I felt a little bit of compassion. It's hard. I don't think people realize in the older generation that like the fact that we didn't have social media and camera phones and stuff, if, if you had these same feelings as her, you would go like, like cry on the shoulder of your friend, your roommate or your parents in the past, but she happened to do it to the whole internet. Yeah. Right, because that's the way that these kids these days express themselves. You know what else? I would be okay with a nine to, with going from nine to four. Does anything really happen in the last hour of the day for the average worker? 
I know people think like young people are screwed because they're not going to be going to the office anymore and they're not going to be able to move up. I think the fact that the pandemic happened for young people and you have the potential opportunity to work remotely, I think that their life satisfaction is going to be so much greater if they have that opportunity to do that. I think they're going to be so much happier in the end because of the pandemic and the fact that they could work remotely. I certainly am. Yeah, a lot of people are. Okay. And I think what I just said is definitely what's causing a lot of the the bifurcated feelings, right? It's like people that are lucky enough like us to be able to work remotely. Yes. And a lot of the world just isn't that lucky. Yeah. And th- that's, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's, that's, that's the reality of the situation. Okay. Yeah. We already mentioned gas prices, f- 35 straight days, 43 to the past 45 days. Not so bad. Oh, so just things normalizing, right? Are we firmly, is, are we, we're, we're, we're post COVID, right? That's in the rearview mirror. Yes. Okay. Remember, a lot of the inflation was due to supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. Remember how often we used to pay attention to the the, the sh- shipping c- containers and stuff? Supply chain was a topic in the doc, was it not? Oh, yeah, that's right. We deleted it finally. We deleted it. So uh, here's a great chart from Bloomberg. Fewer than 10% of firms report slowing delivery times. So went all the way up. And not only did it, I mean, it went all the way back down. Like all the way back down, we are back to pre-pandemic numbers in terms of delivery times. Don't you think that normalization is part of the reason for the economic boom we had as well? Like a lot of this stuff just, it it smoothed out and there was so much pent-up demand. That's why we had this weird burp. It's like an economic burp, right? That like it finally got released. Speaking of economic burp, somebody said like, never mind. I don't want to butcher the quote. I don't want to butcher the quote. Well, fine. I'll say it. Somebody, it could have been, I feel like Charlie Munger said this. It might've been Elon Musk. Um, oh no, 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 no. It was from, I think it was from the house of Usher. Ideas are like <laughs> farts. I, I didn't hear this one. Does that ring a bell? No, I, I watched an episode of it. I'm, I'm intrigued. Okay. That's My wife quote. gave up after that. It was too scary for her. She would never be able to watch any of your horror movies. No, my, my horror movies go hard. I, that's what I'm saying. She would never be able to do it. She gets too scared from those movies. All right, so Jeff Weniger tweeted, bye-bye, Tina, hello, Tammy. What's the story here? There are money market yields. That's a stretch. There are money market yields? So Eric Belchuna said, I can't overstate how much 5% plus yields in money markets have changed behavior flows this year. They act like a giant vacuum cleaner, $1 trillion in counting. It makes sense. Like this is it does one of make sense. That, like, I, I totally get it. It does make sense. So, so Bank of America allocations to cash and T-bills is the highest since February 2010. And again, it makes sense. But my point is, and I feel fairly strongly about this, that this money will not be ser- well served over the long term. The money will be. The money's not coming out. I could be wrong. I don't. No, I, I don't buy that. I think like if we get a new bull market, this is going to be cash on the sidelines. People are going to people are going to chase out of money markets into stocks. Okay, so you, so you, you disagree with me that the money's going to stay in money markets, but you agree with me that it's going to do so in a way that is not suboptimal. It's going to come in sub, late. That is, right, exactly. That's suboptimal. People are going to become addicted to the cash and by the time it's too late, then they're going to move out and yes. There was a great chart, a great article by Robin Wigglesworth, I believe, in the Financial Times and uh they were looking at just the rise of specialized ETFs. And 
if you there's a chart showing months relative to ETF launch date, cumulative alpha. And the more specialized the ETF, the wider the distribution of returns and the worse the, the worse the performance relative to the market. And I think part of the reason why is, is just timing that these specialized ETFs tend to happen after the boom, right? So let's just say that weed stocks had an incredible run. Then you would see weed stock ETFs at the market. So it's that just, it's sense. more of a, it's more of a timing thing. You do anything. like the good back test. You set it out there. Yeah. And it's, it is, it is a, also a timing based thing. Uh, speaking of specialized ETFs, covered call ETFs, fit, uh, this is from Bank of America, $55 billion of flows in the past five years. Whew. And I think that this is, um, I think that this will continue. How much of this do you think is advisor driven chase? Because I feel like, I don't mean to like throw All shade at other advisors, but- I feel like advisors are really, really bad at this stuff in terms of like, we're going to go all in on commodities in after the 2000s happen and then they crash. And we're going to go all in on black swan funds. And we're going to go all in on all liquid alts. And we're going to go all in on covered calls. Don't you think that that advisors as a group are always a little behind on this stuff? Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's the case with covered call strategies. But if they, if, if they, if we do get like a, a whatever, a bull market in the next few years, and covered calls are gonna they're gonna lag. That's that's the nature of these strategies. Our advisors are gonna sit around and wait in them. This is wishful thinking. I think that the people that are buying these strategies are doing so appropriately and understand the trade-offs that they're making, that they will not capture as much as the upside and they will not capture as much as the downside. That's pretty straightforward how these things work. I think you give people way too much credit, but it's possible. I am optimistic that advisors that are allocating to these strategies, because I think this is 90% advisor driven, right? With most retail ETF with with most ETF flows. I think that I'm gonna I'm gonna take the optimistic view that people are buying this and understand exactly what they're doing it for. Okay. Um, so here's a good tweak for from so so SBF, guilty on all counts, seven counts, 115 years maximum sentence. I don't know anything about trials or anything about anything. Doesn't it seem like it happened really fast? Really fast, really fast. I thought this would be like a, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I just assumed wrongly that it was going to take a few months. It was fast that the, he got convicted on all accounts. Justice was served here, I think, right? Justice was served. So did you, did you hear my joke? I'm sorry. More like effective ultra prison. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good <laughs> one. <laughs> so Joe Weisenthal tweeted, actually, so you, you tweeted you tweeted a gif of uh, of Chris Farley and Adam Sandler, right? Yes. Eh, eh. Did you know that Jim Farley's cousin? Scroll down. Scroll all the way down. I put this in uh, in random. Jim Farley's cousin is the CEO of Ford. Oh, I did hear that. Yeah, Chris Farley's cousin. Look at the, look yeah, at this picture Jim of him. Farley. Yeah. Wow. Okay, it does look just like him. <laughs> Holy shit! That looks. That's a Farley. That is a Farley. So, all right. So, Joe Weisenthal tweeted all Sorry, the people. Before we get into this, uh, Jay Moore was on the David Spade Find the Wall podcast recently. I haven't heard he, that name in a while. What happened to him? He kind of went off the deep end and, and he got clean. But he's he's married he's married to Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Lakers. Oh, I think somebody told me. Maybe you told me about that. But he was telling old Farley stories from the SNL days, and it was amazing. Just there, I can't even repeat them here. They're amazing. So worth a listen. So Weisenthal tweeted, all the people who said Sam Bankman-Fried would never be charged because of his political donations, probably one of the clearest examples of what is a very common phenomenon where the savvy people who want, quote, the real story tend to be the biggest dupes who fall for the dumbest ideas. Well said. 
Way to go, Joe. <laughs> well said. So uh, anyway, crypto's alive, I guess. $300 million went into crypto funds last week. Biggest inflow in almost 18 months. Hope they didn't steal it from the Bitcoin ETF. What did you say it's going to get? $100 billion? That was a bit rich, huh? Okay. Put that I'd on like your to, 10, 10 surprises for 2024. I'd like to, I'd like to dial that down. Okay. Uh, all right. As of end of August, when the, when the latest data was released, Case-Shiller National Home Price Index hit another new all-time high, which is just crazy with rates at 8%. Here's the thing. Everyone is looking for an exotic way to hedge inflation, right? Well, it's going to be Bitcoin, or it's going to be tips, or it's going to be some other weird alt, right? It was just buying a house. That was the best hedge all along for inflation, right? And I think it always, that's the way it was in the 70s, too. Like you, you could try to like figure out like a second derivative of inflation. If this works, then this. Where well, the, the, hang on. The simple, it's the simplest thing. The house, it was that not, was it. It's not a good way to hedge your portfolio, but it is definitely a way to hedge your actual life. Yeah, like it's if a personal you, balance if you, sheet. Yeah, for, no doubt about it. That's a, that's a great point. So yeah, so, so <laughs> unbelievable. An all-time high. If rates come down even a little bit, watch out. Not only are home prices not going to fall, they're going to skyrocket again. It's going to get well, mortgage worse. Mortgage rates went from eight to seven and a half in a blink of an eye when bond rates fell. I, so I, what sort I of activity like, pickup are we going to see this week? Probably a, a lot. I mean, if, if you let's say you you locked in an eight percent rate last week, would you just say throw my paperwork out? I'm not taking it. You 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 threatened to walk, wouldn't you? Yeah. I don't know what else you would do. Uh, Redfin. Almost a third of homes for sale are new construction. The highest share of any third quarter on record. Kind of wild, huh? It makes sense. And you think that's going to, it has to slow down at some point too, doesn't it? I don't know. Do you see this Realtor Commission thing? A I did. federal jury in Missouri found the NAR, National Association of Realtors, and large brokers has conspired to keep our costs artificially high and awarded $1.8 in damages. Uh, basically, they said like forcing the seller to pay the buyer's realtor commissions is illegal, right? So in a report released ahead of the verdict, a real estate industry analyst predicted that lawsuits could lead to a 30% reduction in the $100 billion that Americans pay in real, real estate commissions each year and push well over half of the almost 1.6 million agents out of the industry. Uh, if sellers are banned from paying buyer's agents, then buyers could be forced to come up with additional cash or go without an agent. I imagine this is the kind of thing that could be negotiated. I don't know how long it'll take for this to make an impact, but Bloomberg had a story saying, Zillow and Redfin tanked. They, Zillow fell like 7% when this happened. And my initial thing was, why wouldn't this be good for Zillow if people are f like not using a realtor anymore? And so I listened to the call on quarter and Rich Barton said, like, of course he's going to say it's going to be, what else is he going to say? But he was saying that apparently international markets, it's more like a classified thing. And he's saying in this scenario, Zillow would be the odds-on favorite to become the leading digital listings marketplace given our brand, traffic, engagement, and our unique focus on solving movers' real pains, blah, blah, blah. It, this makes sense to me. Like, if, 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 if realtors aren't as big of a deal and they can't have as much sway in the industry, doesn't that make Zillow, like, the leading player here? Because you're going to go everything's going to go through them. As shareholders, we sure hope so, eh? I don't know. It makes sense. I, I, do you still own Zillow? I do. Uh... And this is the this is the thing about like I've been bullish on the real estate industry for like last three years, and I have bought Zillow and have not done nothing but lost money. This is why owning a house is the best thing. I, I can't believe a hundred billion dollars go to real estate commissions every year. But that almost you, seems like a fake number. A hundred billion? What? But do you really think this is going to change things? Doesn't doesn't this just get negotiated behind the scenes somewhere or something? I I just don't know. I, I'll be. I, I, this is like I'll believe it when I see it, kind of thing. 
Uh, all right, let's do some quarter stuff. So, uh, Sam Rowe tweeted of the, from from Tom Lee of the 399 companies that have reported so far, which is 80% of the S&P, 82% are beating estimates. And those that beat are beating by a median of 7%. I feel like this is every quarter, though. Is it not? No, that's high. That's really high. Okay. The beats are usually not that high. Not just percentage. I think the percentage is normally like in the low 70s. One of the areas that, because we've been talking a lot about people say adjust it for inflation. I feel like earnings are the one place where they never adjust for inflation. And don't you think that falling inflation is actually going to make things wor- look worse because they always look at earnings on a nominal basis? That obviously depends what the margins, but don't you think that rising inflation has actually helped because these companies have pricing power to pass things through? Or do you think that falling inflation is going to help even more because they're not going to lower their prices? Yeah, I think, I think the prices are staying. So I think falling inflation is going to help help their margins. So here, so you know what doesn't matter in the short term valuations. You know what does matter expectations. Yes, right. Totally like agree. there could be there could be the S and P could be trading at thirteen times earnings, and if if earnings are below estimates, stocks can get killed. Conversely, S and P could be trading at twenty eight times earnings, and if you beat expectations, the stocks are going to go up. Better or worse, not good or bad. That's that's exactly right. So Bank of America, remember waiting for a better entry point. S&P 500 consensus long-term growth expectations are near all-time lows, excluding the Magnificent Seven. The probability of a positive surprise in higher beta stocks is high in our view. That's that's Savita. So there's a chart showing bullish versus bearish and expectations. That's it. Yep. Expectations. All right. There's a great chart from Quarter. Uh, not that this would be on my radar at all, but they're showing the beauty war, comparing the last five quarters growth rates of L'Oreal versus Estee Lauder. And Estee Lauder, again, for reasons that are beyond me, is just, it's it's negative. There's a lot of apostrophes and in, in lines and stuff on these companies. Yeah, I don't, I don't not a not a specialist in the beauty industry, but Charlie Buffett was on. <laughs> hey <Hey-o. laughs> Charlie Munger was on the Acquire podcast. What a get, huh? I listened to that. That was in my recommendations. It was what great. What a get. So- Charlie was saying they were asking why why he can never convince Warren to buy Costco and what about Nike and and Buffett was just Charlie said Buffett just doesn't like just doesn't really like retail like it's just people's taste and you know and I just thought seeing this I, I I was just reminded of the two things. All right, so there's there's a definite theme emerging from earnings season, and I think this speaks to a lot of you know people are happy no they're not yes they are. There's winners and losers. There's winners and losers always, but in the, in the economy and certainly in corporate America. So Caesars, which is a stock that I own, demand trends remain healthy during the third quarter. With Did you occupancy, buy this because you're going to Vegas this weekend? There we go. With occupancy increasing to 96.6% versus 93, 93.6% in the prior year. Uh, but then you have Canada Goose, which is a luxury brand. This is from Transcript. Our outlook for the second half has come under pressure. As a result, we saw early momentum gathered uh, in Q4 begin to slow noticeably in September. So again, Estee Lauder, another one. Organic net sales declined 11%, primarily driven by expected pressures in the company's Asia travel retail business. Uh, Apple, terrible in China. What's what's Apple doing today? I know the stock market's strong, but Apple, big miss in China. Oh, Apple, fourth consecutive quarter of year-over-year revenue declines. How about that? Your, your paper bearish trade worked out. Well, paper I don't bear think, on Apple for a while. I mean, stock's doing fine, right? It's down 1% yeah, yeah. today. St- stock's bad. doing fine. Uh, pool. The pool CEO. New pool construction is likely to finish down, 
with units down 30% in 2023, uh, suggesting consumer hesitation on these more discretionary items. Yeah, pockets, right? Pockets. Like, of course, pools are are down. There was the bit was was 2021 not uh, 2020 not the biggest boom in pool construction like ever yes. in the country's history. My brother, my brother and his family put a pool in. They there's so much pulled forward, and there was waiting lists, and I'm sure they've worked a lot of that out. So a mixed economy is my takeaway. All right, we talked a lot about the net worth stuff from before, but the Wall Street Journal had a piece on this that was interesting, and they they said never mind. The one percent, uh, the mini millionaires are where the wealth is growing the fastest. What's a mini millionaire? They generally earn between one hundred fifty and two hundred fifty thousand a year. They wouldn't typically be considered rich, but upper middle class. Obviously, that depends where they live. They say they've seen bigger wealth gains over the past three years than the top ten percent of families. Indeed, the biggest Sorry, wealth remember, gains. Remember, remember, people got mad at me for saying that two hundred thousand dollars a year in income is not rich. Yes, that was a lot of inflation points ago. I wonder what people would say today. Mini millionaire. And to just to just to reiterate, I think it's good living. But sorry, not rich. Depending on where you live. How about that? Depending on where you live. The biggest wealth gains between 2019 and 2022 are among the approximately 13 million families in the 80th to 90th percentile. Their median wealth jumped 69%, adjusted for inflation, to $747,000. Over 90% of these families reported owning stocks. 87% own their home. They benefited from low rates, obviously. Uh, this is interesting, though. It's like, how, how do these people become mini-millionaires? Many people got there by pursuing college degrees, steadily building retirement accounts, and purchasing homes. For the most part, they became wealthy slowly and were, un- were well-positioned when the pandemic-era stimulus programs boosted asset values. 16 million Americans now, just over 12%, have wealth exceeding a million dollars, up from 9.8%, 9.8 million. So I love how they say that these- one more time. There's now 16 million American families, over 12%, that have wealth exceeding a million dollars. That includes your home. Huh. Up from 9.8 million. 8 million are multimillionaires- over two million, but I love how they say that these people. How do they become wealthy? They slowly saved in their retirement plans. They bought a house, and they got a college degree. Like, remember the the whole thing about your the dream scenario of one job and owning one car and buying a house. Like, it's still there, right? Remember, I spoke about earlier in the show moving moving your own goalposts. Yes, I saw a clip. I'll try and find this for the doc. I saw a clip of um, Scott Galloway. And another entrepreneur talking about their money insecurity. Did you see this? Yes. I don't know if there's a producer. Somebody came on the podcast. It was like, are you just like with us <laughs> and basically like pretending that you have money insecurity issues so that you're like, yo, he's one of us. He's, he, he gets us. Right. Or is it reality? And I, I think it's earnest. I think that Galloway in particular definitely has a lot of uh, neuroses as he called it. And I, I believe it's genuine. Um, but the other guy sold his company in his young thirties, early thirties for 20 million. He walked away with $20 million and he said he still has a number and, and he's not there yet. And I think for every one of us, that is so unfathomable, so beyond unfathomable, but this is a constant recurring story. Do you think that the people that get rich are insane people? No, they're human beings. And it happens so much more frequently than than feels comfortable to admit. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that if that was me, I would feel very, I'm pretty sure that I would be like, no, I'm good. But I don't know. I, I don't think the people that are saying that are crazy. Right. It's And again, it's it's like bad individually and good for the society. Yes. Right. It's sad that we can't feel comfortable, that we're always, uh, that we're never satisfied, but that's what drives the economy. Yes. Good, right or wrong, good or bad. That's why Apple's going to 3 trillion. Or was it through Chile or whatever it is? 
Uh, somebody emailed us like uh, we spoke about like we talked about the average American. Or I don't think we talked about the average American that much. But Ben, you met you had a comment last week like what's who's the median American? Oh yeah. And I think you yes. met, did you mention Kansas or what did you say? Yeah, I just said I did guess. Yeah, it's uh, well actually. If the United States map was a scale and every person had equal weight, the center of the population is a place where the scale would balance. Based on data from the 2020 census, the current center of the population is near Hartfield, Missouri. So close. not too far off. All right. I'll take it. The more you know. Uh, all right. So I spoke last week. It seems like everybody who has a Substack is turning on a paid option, which uh, I'm trying to support. I love I love the idea that people are able to, to make money this way. But... It's gone too far. Chamath is launching a page substack. Sub now, you know, if you're, if you're good at something, why give it away free? But come on, is this guy a billionaire? He's doing paid newsletter? Is, am, I, am, I, am I going crazy? Chamath tweeted, learn with me. I'm often asked how I quickly synthesize information and form opinions. The value to me of doing this can be summarized as follows. Be more informed about technology, markets, and the economy. Improve my situational awareness about trends and competitors. Have a clearer picture of how a company or sector is doing over another. Make better decisions. And then, whatever. It's like a 4,000-word tweet. And then he's, you know, subscribed to my paid newsletter. I hope he gives the proceeds to the people who bought his SPACs. How's that? I, I hate dunking on people, and especially like, you know, I don't begrudge anybody making money, but... That's a bit much. That's a bit All much. Right. I don't have much as far as recommendations go. I was gonna, I was gonna recommend Munger on Acquired. Is why I listened to it last night. You told me it's worth listening to. He's almost, he's gonna be hundred in January. I thought the best, the best parts of it were he repeatedly said, "What we did is very hard. It's not easy." He's like, and that, he's like, that's the thing that pisses me off about people today that try to say that like I made a bunch of money and it's easy and here's how you can do it too. He said repeatedly, "It is not easy what we did." And then they asked him. Let's say you and Warren Buffett were 30 years old again today. And I've heard people go over this. Like if Buffett and Munger were 30 today and they were just starting out, could they do it again? And a lot of people said, of course they could. Those guys are so smart. And Munger said, no, we couldn't. That shocked me. Didn't it shock you? Yeah. Like, could you, could you do that again? And he said, no. We, he's like, listen, we're smart, but we timed it perfectly. We got lucky. Things were never, he said things were never like super easy back then, but they were way easier than they are now. And I just love the fact that he kept saying over and over again, this is hard. What we did is hard. And it is, so I, I, I just appreciate it. I hate the people who hit it big and either win the lottery somehow or just through hard work, make a bunch of money and they try to make it sound like it's easy. And I, I totally agree that it's just, it's not, and luck is involved. And yes, it, it was, he's still pretty darn whip smart for being that old, is he not? There's yes. some parts where you couldn't tell what he was saying, but it was highly recommended. Super impressive. Yes. Anything else? Uh... No horror movies for you this week? I find I saw a VHS one that was bad. I've been watching. I, I think I've seen most of those VHS movies, which are crazy frightening. I found a bad one. I think it was ninety nine. Not good. What have I been watching? You know, I, I've been. I don't know. I feel like I've been. Have I been out a lot? I haven't. What did I do this week? I don't know, man. Where the hell is time going? It's November. It's snowing in uh, the Midwest. Middle aged thing to say. Where's the time gone? Email us. How is it November already? Passage of time. The older you get, the passage like. The passage of time freaks people out more than anything as they get older. Like, can you believe that we're closer now to this date than people were at this date to that date? No, I can't. That always gets people. Like, we're closer to, yeah. The passage of time is undefeated. I can't. I can't. It's going too fast. Animal Spirits at thecompoundnews.com. <laughs>